Welcome, and thanks for listening in for our first episode. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts of Aging Fast and Slow, where we will be talking to scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course with a real special emphasis on social justice. Our first guest has performed landmark research advancing our understanding of how chronic stress ages our cells. Today we have Dr. Alyssa Eppel to talk about how chronic stressors affect your DNA. Dr. Eppel is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research aims to understand the mechanisms of aging, even down at the cellular level, and to apply this basic science to interventions that can reach vulnerable populations. She leads multiple studies, has received multiple awards, and today she's made time to talk to us so that we can understand her research. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be on your new podcast. (laughs) We're excited to have you. So tell us, how did you get interested in, in chronic stressors? Well, I was always planning on studying the mind-body connection, and so it was kind of a choice for me between would I take a medical route or a psychological route, and so I found this kind of in-between area, this mix, which has different names, but I'll just call it health psychology or behavioral medicine, where we really study how behaviors, emotions, different mindsets and attitudes are associated with physical health and just physiological functioning in the moment. So I was quite interested in kind of the short-term relationships between what we do and how that affects our physiological balance. So that's how I started. It was very fortuitous that I started off with one of my advisors, Judith Roden, involved in this MacArthur Network on Social Class and Health. And through that really chewing on the question of how do these big health disparities start and what is the role of stress. So we spent a lot of time thinking about unpacking the different types of stress that might get under the skin and contribute to the health disparities, especially the health disparities that emerge with aging. Great. And would you say you had an aha moment at some point during that in terms of disparities or chronic stressors? Well, I would say my thinking has evolved. Mm -hmm. So it was mysterious to me and fascinating how things like life circumstances, lower income and, you know, education, how those might create more stress and how that might be manifested in the body. So I think I went in with a maybe more of a naive view from having limited life experiences And now about 30 years later, the physiology is always fascinating and full of discoveries. But the fact that we embody chronic stress, that it shows up in our health behaviors, how we eat and our sleep is no mystery. Mm -hmm. And we have such a bigger understanding of the intergenerational transmission of systemic oppression, of how the effects of race in discrimination are really shaping people's life from day one, from the intrauterine experience. So we just have such a, you know, much more multi-layered complex understanding of how our social structure and our social stress is shaping our 
physiology right at the start of life. You had, you had such an interesting article recently about um, telomere shortening in relation to cross generations, which you just alluded to, which is fascinating. Also a little scary, I think. Right. So that I would say you pointed to one of the most interesting examples of why it's interesting to study telomeres. So telomeres are these caps that protect the ends of chromosomes in each cell. Mm -hmm. And as we age and as cells divide, they get shorter. But it turns out they are socially regulated as well. So they appear to be shorter with different psychological stressors, social stressors, psychiatric disorders. So a whole range of life circumstances related to chronic stress that end up what we think is shortening telomeres. We always thought it just happened mm -hmm. when people were under stress. But the review you're pointing to shows us that we now know that during our interuterine development, if the pregnant mother is exposed to severe stressors or other types of physiological stressors, the baby tends to come out with shorter telomeres on day one, right there in their cord right. blood. So that's one factor. That's what we think of as the, the prenatal experience. But then the other piece is that regardless of experience during development, there can be an epigenetic transmission. So if a parent has very short telomeres, they can pass that on through the sperm and egg to the offspring, not necessarily, not necessarily through genetics. It could have been short through, through life experiences. That's kind of a question. And, you know, right. I'll say that's the edge of the research question. If, right. if life experiences can lead to very short telomeres in the parents, then that directly is transmitted to the child regardless of the genetics that is crazy yeah. wow really fascinating and i wonder for in case some of our listeners don't know what epigenetics are and an epigenetic clock if you could just give a really brief explanation of those so yes yeah. so the the dna code in our genes that create every protein in our body are immutable and unchangeable and while it's interesting to know some of our vulnerabilities, mostly it doesn't quite help us, but rather how our lifestyle and our stress triggers those genes or turns them on and off is, turns out to be very, very important in most understanding most chronic diseases and how mm -hmm. we can have a healthy lifespan or health span. But the epigenetics is now helping us understand why uh, the environment helps so much. So the genes are turned on and off by these proteins that surround the DNA, that surround the genes. So, for example, these methylation bonds are kind of like doors, and a gene might be turned off. The door might be locked, depending on the pattern of our methylation bonds. Mm -hmm. And we call that our epigenetics, or our above-the-genome patterns. We're under extreme stress our genes are going to be shaped, the epigenetics are going to be shaped towards surviving in a harsh environment. And that is determined both from birth as well as from life experience. So some of it's transmitted, some of it's from our birth experience, and some of it's particularly from our early life experience. That is really helpful explanation. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And so, you know, when you think about your work, which is, um, you know, has been really quite fascinating, um, 
if you if you had to you know start start over with that with that body of work, what might you have done differently? Yes, that is a good question. We started off looking a lot in adults and in cross-sectional studies. And now that we know that there's this transgenerational transmission of certain biomarkers, certainly telomere length, maybe epigenetic clock, maybe levels of inflammation, then really looking carefully at that stage of life is an important area. And it's parents of childbearing age before they conceive how their life experiences and health is transmitted possibly through their DNA and their epigenetics. And then of course the pregnancy period is a critical period. And so we're doing studies now during pregnancy to see if, for example, improving nutrition and reducing stress actually change some of that kind of setting the clock on the aging mechanisms at birth. So that's, you know, those early life interventions, and especially during pregnancy, are very, very influential and important time periods. So that's what I would, mm -hmm. uh, if I was starting over, I would probably start right there <laughs> on these interventions. So, and how, you know, thinking about where we are now in terms of big data and sort of, um, I think, uh, in many cases, greater availability of, of, of some of the information that might be important for these um, sorts of studies. I mean, how could, how have you seen in your work that we might be able to harness this sort of information better to answer some of these questions? Yes, I think that the, I'll, I'll answer in two ways. I think one is things have changed so much. Like you said, we are, we do have access to big data. We don't have enough people who are trained in this kind of data science to really make sense of so much human behavioral data. We just can't, we can't find enough of those types of collaborators. And I think now that we're in this world that's changing so rapidly, uh, we've been very focused on social stratification and health disparities. But now on top of that, we have climate crises that are just mm -hmm. starting and are going to intensify that will augment and synergize with vulnerability, social, mm -hmm. geographical, economic vulnerability. So we, you know, the more we can get a handle on both the science of understanding how climate, temperature, pollution, how these factors are affecting us, it's especially helpful to look ahead and think about what are we missing? Some of this is baked in and we can't change it. So now we really need to think of stress resilience Right. in a different way, not just within people, but within communities. Yeah. And so there are these whole other fields, social resilience, communal resilience, disaster preparedness, that we now need to understand and know about and work with to be building our, what you might call interventions, or you also might call it, you know, preparing us for this next generation of global stress. Right. It's almost like you're saying the telomeres of the globe are shortening. Yes, and, and there are some researchers who think that, you know, as through generations, through looking at cohort studies, there may be overall shortening, uh -huh. but we also know that there's such health disparities, yeah. certainly in how telomeres are shaped and transmitted, but uh, just this question of, of optimal lifespan is really a secondary and luxurious question, and, yeah. and this, the right. thornier question of, the more dramatic health disparities are, I guess, let's just say, with 
the world on fire, that is what we're going to need to be really looking at and spending a lot more time and energy on. So you've, you know, clearly have, have led a, a tremendously distinguished career. Um, when you think back at, at, you know, at those people who really shaped your career, the, those um, mentors that you had, what piece of advice um, really, really sticks with you that you received from them? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've had the benefit and privilege of working with, you know, many, many different mentors and colleagues. And I really just think of myself as a composite of so many different styles of doing science that I've learned. And part of that is being at a medical school that's highly collaborative. We really kind of gear ourselves toward team science and you can't tell whose ideas started with who, you know, we just kind of yeah. ask are guided by, you know, some common values like impact, not ego. What's the most important mm -hmm. question we can ask and, you know, really just trying to have these superordinate goals. Uh-huh. Great. Oh, really Wonderful. Powerful. Thank you. Great advice. Um, if there's anything you want to add or recent research or anything. Uh, let's see. I do have a newsletter that I welcome people to join that really gives a well-rounded view of kind of what we do. We sponsor conferences, mostly on the social and biological factors underlying metabolic disease, not just obesity, but really deranging our metabolism as we age. I also have just let myself just develop the hobby of applying some of the mind-body practices mm -hmm. in a retreat format where I teach people both about the science underlining some of these mind-body connections as well as some of these practices like restorative yoga and uh -huh. meditation. And that's just pure fun and reward to really actually have real life conversations and ask, well, what does this finding mean to this person? Is it, is it relevant? Is it useful? So that kind of forces and pushes me to be more practical and not have 10 qualifiers to every, you know, <laughs> finding or statement I want to make right. as I've been so well trained to do as a researcher. <laughs> well, great. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Eppel. And for more information, check out our website nursing.jhu.edu forward slash aging fast and slow for the resources that were referenced in this episode. You won't want to miss the next episode, which is with Dr. Keith Whitfield, who's an expert in cognitive aging, and he's done fascinating studies on African-American twins. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Aging Fast and Slow. Have comments, questions, or guest suggestions? please reach out to us at agingcenter at jhu.edu or on Twitter at agingcenter. And check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu forward slash aging fast and slow. Know anyone else who would benefit from listening to this podcast? Please share it with them. Special thanks today for Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design. Erica Hornstein for producing the show, and Ray Fredgie for technical expertise. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.